Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, today on the show, I welcome brothers Huron and Henner Gracie. The Gracie family and name are virtually synonymous with the martial art form Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which was developed in Brazil in the 1920s by their grandfather, Helio, and his brother, Carlos. Now, Huron and Henner are master black belt practitioners, teachers, and co-creators of Gracie University and its online curriculum. They oversee a network of hundreds of globally affiliated dojos and their Gracie breakdown videos on YouTube, which analyze everything from professional fights to street violence, have garnered tens of millions of views. In our conversation, we discuss the history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the Gracie family's role in its development, and the art form's popularization through Ultimate Fighting Championship, the UFC, which was founded by their father. We outline some of the primary principles of the martial art and why those techniques are so effective in providing self-defense against bigger and stronger adversaries. We explore the parallels between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and mindfulness, and we get into some considerable depth around the utility of BJJ in respect to police training, an area of long-term focus for the Gracie Brothers. Now, Commune has collaborated with the Gracie Brothers on a course called Jiu-Jitsu for Self-Defense, a 10-day introductory course that demonstrates the 10 most useful Jiu-Jitsu techniques. If you'd like to try the course for free, go to onecommune.com slash Gracie. Now, Huron and Henner have an effusive and complimentary brotherly vibe. Their energy is palpable, so I sense you will really enjoy this episode. So, without further impediment, here's my conversation with Huron and Henner Gracie. All right, Huron and Henner Gracie, good to be with you. <laughs> Thanks for having us, man. Hello. Yeah, what a treat to be with the legendary Gracie brothers on the show. I've never had uh, brothers on the show, 
I never had legends like you guys either. So this is a, a first. <laughs> happy to be here, man. Happy to be here. Happy to be engaging with such a such a massive and uh, unique audience that Commune has aggregated over so many years. So we're stoked to be part of it, and we know that um, you know the, the the catalog of um, just amazing humans that you guys have worked with is 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 something amazing, and we're proud to be part of it. Yeah. Well, I'm just thrilled to be having this conversation with you. Um, for many reasons, but primarily because I love introducing my podcast audience and the commune audience to new ideas and techniques and practices that can enrich their lives. And um, and while I'm relatively new, I'm like a, a neophyte on the <laughs> um, in the dojo at this juncture um, with regards to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I am learning how incredibly useful this practice is in myriad ways from getting into shape and building confidence to gaining body awareness and 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 developing and generating community like i just can't believe the community that exists around gracie jiu-jitsu and what you guys have created the passion the friendships it's unbelievable so there's a lot of terrain I want to cover in this conversation. Obviously, BJJ has a lot of utility for self-defense, especially for defending yourself against bigger and heavier and uh, more dangerous opponents or assailants. So hopefully you guys can explain why this is the case. And separately, I hope to um, explore a bit of the applicability of BJJ for police officer training because this topic is particularly poignant right now, given the public outcry against unjustified use of, of force by police officers. And this is obviously intensified when set against the backdrop of, of social justice. And you guys are doing so much important work in this regard. So I hope we can get into highlighting this dimension uh, of your work and BJJ in general. And it's not just that you're expanding the demographic of jujitsu to law enforcement, but you're also bringing it to whole new audiences, kids, women, the military, and other groups. So for people listening that might think that martial arts is just for UFC fighters or whatever, you guys are going to change people's minds about that. And um, But before we jump in, I, I'd like to, just given that my audience is relatively new to the art, um, perhaps you can scaffold our conversation in a little bit of history, how and why it came about, and and your family's central involvement uh, in the development. Well, thank you, Jeff. And um, given kind of today's backdrop of you know the UFC, it's probably fair to assume, and this wasn't the case maybe a decade or so ago, um, but today in today's day and age, it's fair to assume that you know everyone has heard of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? It's a household term because it's a, it's a preeminent art in mixed martial arts. So we don't have to assume they haven't heard of that anymore. What we can assume, though, is that besides its utility in MMA, people have no idea what jujitsu is and how far back it goes, where it came from. Um, so we're glad to share on that. And, and really, what in terms of what matters to us, people have really no idea um, how, how broadly it's being used in society outside of the sport of MMA. And to us, that's really where our passion lies. Even though our, our family created the UFC, um, our passion is in making sure that every demographic has really 
a demographic specific program that empowers them to benefit from this amazing art in a way that is effective for their physicality, right? Because not everyone's a professional athlete. And this is the reason why our family created the UFC. Our father knew that this would get eyes on jujitsu. So it was essentially a, an infomercial to show the world just exactly how effective jujitsu was as a form of self-defense. And now it's kind of been lost and it's, it's a competition now. So people are not so much you know, looking right. at UFC and saying, wow, I can learn these self-defense skills. They're not thinking that anymore because it's become time limits and there's judges and there's weight classes. But the UFC, when it began, it very much did display our Uncle Hoist fighting people who outweighed him and completely different martial arts. So it did inspire many to start learning to defend themselves with jiu-jitsu. And to go back a little further, it's, um, you know, our, our grandfather, and his brother Carlos and the other brothers there as well were introduced to the Japanese art of jiu-jitsu in the early 1900s. And long story short, um, while my grandfather's brothers, our great uncles, were moderately successful with jiu-jitsu and with its application and even started teaching it, our grandfather was the youngest one of the bunch and physically was the most restricted in terms of his athleticism. So he couldn't do the Japanese techniques as they were taught. So through adaptation of those techniques and really the philosophy with which they were practiced, right? Um, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was born. It was really through necessity of making the techniques more efficient, making the mindset more universally applicable uh, for smaller people against larger opponents. So those adaptations to the original Japanese kind of predecessor of the art there um, are what gave birth to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So it's not a completely new set of techniques like these chokes, arm bars, and takedowns didn't exist. They did. The difference really was in the mindset with which it's practiced. And a very rudimentary example is you know, in judo, for example, when someone gets taken down and their back hits the ground, the fight's over, right? If you do a nice throw and they hit the ground, that's the end of the match. In jujitsu, if you throw me on the ground and my back hits the ground, we're just getting started. <laughs> so that's a very big difference that, um, you know, that, that, that is really highly emphasized even today in jujitsu versus, let's say, wrestling, an amazing grappling art. Um, judo, another great grappling art. So these arts are amazing. They teach grappling holds. Uh, for different purposes and objectives, but in jujitsu, the the kind of the underlying accepted principle there is: look, if I'm on my back, you're in trouble. If you're on your back, you're in trouble. Wherever we are, you're in trouble because we've okay. developed comfort from every imaginable position in the fight. And you can imagine that from a self-defense perspective, where you can anticipate an assault happening by a larger, more athletic person against someone smaller and weaker, where that is likely to be the case. Right. You have to have an art that almost anticipates these worst case scenarios so that when they happen, they're not new. They are rehearsed, they're practiced, and they're familiar. And ultimately, it's our belief that in a fight, whoever becomes most comfortable with these uncomfortable positions will spend energy more efficiently and burn more slowly their energy reserves. And as a result, the opponent who is not as comfortable on the ground or in a close confines of a fight will burn energy more panickingly and more rapidly, and the stronger, bigger person over time depletes their energy, while the jujitsu trained opponent can stay safe and conserve energy and ultimately create a disproportionate advantage to allow them to win the fight with joint locks or chokeholds, or um, in other many important cases, just escape and get to safety. <clears throat> yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, as I've started to learn more about jujitsu, I... Um... Uh, I can't help but compare it to the practice that I'm most familiar with, which is meditation and mindfulness, right? So being he present in the here and now. 
And and the more I learn about jujitsu, the more I'm like, okay, this practice actually pulls me back into my prefrontal cortex, into a place of reason and rationality. So I'm not, I, I know I've, I've heard you use this term, I'm not amygdala hijacked. I can actually make really good decisions uh, about how I'm going to assess this situation. And then, as you say, you use my weight and my leverage to deplete um, my opponent's energy. But a lot of that is happening up here in your mind through making good decisions and staying calm and staying focused in the present moment. So I keep I keep relating it back to, to meditation, which is obviously a practice I think that most of my audience is, is even more familiar with than jujitsu. But I'd love to actually, if you could um, break down a little bit more of your family's history, because the story of, of your dad then coming to Hermosa Beach and setting up the little his little dojo and, and and the fights that were starting to happen in in the garage and sort of the the syncretism that started to happen between all of these different art forms. Uh, I just think it's fascinating from a historical perspective. And then also, you know, maybe you could kind of prod at how jujitsu kind of. <laughs> came to almost dominate all of these other arts like what was it about the technique that made it so effective versus you know karate and taekwondo etc so let's talk about um jujitsu dominating the other arts first because and that is how and how special that is mm. but at the same time it's not that important so that's a beautiful thing. And the reason why jiu-jitsu dominates all the other arts is we talk about how Henry mentioned the other day that there's, there is the martial arts before UFC one, mm-hmm. right? November, 1993. And there's the martial arts after UFC one, 1993. Mm-hmm. And we talk about how there's this, you know, 35, 40 years ago, there's this agreed upon distance between two people when they're going to fight. And we square off and we're like within one arm's length reach of each other. And both people throw punches and and maybe kicks if they have a little bit of skill. But it's usually just striking. And and that's how a fight goes down. And before you know it, one person gets punched and the fight is over. And when it's the martial arts fighting, then it's a little more skill involved. But it's a like we said, it's it's agreed upon fighting distance. But when jujitsu arrived on the scene... Jiu-Jitsu said, no, that's not how it works. We don't have to stand one arm's length distance from you. We can stand a little further away, right outside of your reach. And when you advance us and when you attempt to land a strike, we can move in through that danger zone. We call it the red zone. The green zone is a safe zone. The red zone is where someone can strike you. We move through that red zone and we grab a hold of you. And we move into another green zone where we are so close that your punches no longer have the same effectiveness that that they would have standing up. And that's where jujitsu changed everything. And that's why jujitsu dominates all the other martial arts, especially the traditional arts. Well, the the striking arts. arts. Yeah, the arts that rely on that perfect distance. Listen, they can't play anymore. Statistically, they have to land one perfect shot and we have to go down. So statistically, they have a 1% chance, let's call it, that they land a shot perfectly on the jaw and drops us. 
Statistically, all we have to do, Jeff, is grab them. Yeah. Literally, their clothing, yes. their hair, their neck, their body, their arm. And once we're here, it doesn't matter if he hits me because we're too close for those punches to be damaging. And yeah. this realization that not all punches are created equally is at the core of the reason why jujitsu reigns supreme uh, against other arts. Because we know that once we get a hold of mm. someone and the fight stays either standing or it goes to the ground, once we're closer than one arm length away, we're like within half an arm length, they don't have the power because they're punching with just their their bicep or their shoulder instead of the mass of their whole body and driving off the ground the way any effective knockout punch should be delivered. So we created what we not we coined, I should say, what we call the punch power scale. And every punch exists on a scale from one to 10. Okay. And a one is like, if you don't have an overhook and I was here and I was doing this with my hand, I'm hitting him one. And I'm using one joint, just my wrist. Okay. And maybe if I was doing a two, it'd be like here, like doing this, because now it's my wrist and my elbow. A three would be if I was in the bottom of the fight and I was with my arm, boom. So it's my wrist, my elbow, and my shoulder. A four is all three joints, but with my hips twisting into it. So I'm still on the bottom or confined space, but I'm using my hips. So it's another joint. Look at the joints. And a five is all of those, but from the top grappling position. So if I'm on top of you and I'm hitting you, it's with gravity. Gravity is the fifth joint. Now, numbers six through 10 are standing strikes delivered from the perfect distance, but the difference in the number is a function of the punching capability of the thrower of the punch. Mm. So Mike Tyson is a 10 at his prime, and a six would be you at a perfect distance, no offense, Jeff, would be you <laughs> at a perfect distance with all the power you had to hit Hedon in the jaw, that would be considered a six. If you have no punch training and not yeah. a lot of power, you're just going to throw a random punch like anybody would, and it's a six. But seven, eight, and nine, and 10 are functions of who's throwing that punch. So in jujitsu, our goal is to absolutely eliminate non-existent fives through 10. They don't exist in the fight. There's never the time for them to exist because we're not allowing that distance. And we only permit one through four, but even the one through four are sparingly permitted throughout the fight. And we're always trying to manage those distance. And here's the whole point. The attacker who doesn't know this punch power scale and does not know jujitsu will be trying to throw tens the whole time. And there's nothing more depleting of one's energy than punches that don't mm -hmm. land. So we don't have to beat anyone up. We simply have to avoid the damage of their punches by managing distance, and they will defeat themselves. And that's what makes jujitsu so special, particularly against the arts that rely entirely on striking, is that once they're out of the effective striking range, they will defeat themselves. And that's what happened in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, into the UFC, 1993, and then now the rest is history. So when you go back to our father, when he came to America, like 1979, 1978-1980s, our father and his brothers, they would have challenge matches. They would fight other martial artists in their garage. Hey. And how did this happen? They would meet someone. For example, someone would come learn jujitsu. I'm a student. I want to learn, from, the, I want to learn from Master Hidon. And everybody knows a martial artist. Well, and I, maybe I trained karate in another school, yes. but I also want to learn jujitsu. I'm just a student white belt. So as a student, he goes and he tells his friend's friend, he said, hey, these guys do jujitsu. They said that they're the best. I'm like, so, Master Cho, listen, my Gracie instructor, he's a really good Brazilian guy, and I think it will work. So the Master Cho says, no, it probably won't work on me because I can I've, been, fight him. I've been punching bricks for 40 <laughs> so, years. So I break bricks, I break faces, and they'll never grab me because I'm too fast. So then Master Cho comes into the garage. All due respect, Master Cho, let's and, just do it. And Master Cho gets choked. Yeah. <laughs>
And <laughs> now this, and the thing is this, and this happens. And then students watch this. Students watch. And students are like, wow. We always invite the students. But that was just too simple. He just got a hold of them, took them to the ground. He avoided the six, the five, six, seven, and eight punches on the punch scale. Just rushing. Didn't grab. get hurt. Master Cho gets tired, burns energy. And then the, the jiu-jitsu representative, which in many cases was our father, our uncles, you know, submits this other martial artist. 60 seconds. Now, average 50 to 60 seconds. This is normal Gracie Garage now, for, for, with guys who've been training for their whole lives in punching. Now, listen, this insane. is very powerful because this goes beyond the other martial arts. Mm. Because it doesn't matter if Henner can choke a, a, a Taekwondo black belt down the street. That doesn't matter. Mm. What matters is that that Taekwondo black belt, he fights in the agreed upon distance that the everyday untrained person walking the street also fights from. Mm. Because the guy who works now, at, he, yeah, you point. know, the guy who works at, right you know, at the Jiffy Loop down the street, the gas station, how he's going to fight is the same as the Taekwondo person. He's going to get within a distance to where he can strike you. Now, the Taekwondo person is throwing More kicks, a little less punch. They're throwing, you know, seven, eight, nines and tens in terms of the effectiveness or nines and Speed, tens. Flexibility. The guy who works at the gas station is throwing, Six you know, seven. sixes in his strikes. But the point is that strategy is the same to defend yourself against the Taekwondo expert. And the guy who works at the gas station, it's the same thing. We manage the distance. That's it. And, and when you manage the distance, you manage the damage that can be done to you. Yeah, so this is, for me, one of the key essential takeaways for just the average person listening to this podcast mm. is that you never wake up and expect to be in a violent altercation, right? But but life happens, right? And, and violence occurs. And this notion of distance management, of eliminating the distance, that seems to be like, if, if you can learn anything, um, just to apply to your own life and yeah, be able to, to, to apply that in your daily life, just like how you apply a meditation practice that then becomes to, it begins to sort of punctuate how you live your daily life. These are some core principles. So it seems like, and just correct me as I go along, because I'm just trying to give a few bullet points, but distance management so eliminate the distance right and then do you, is is the first strategy or tactic get them to the ground is that is that what something that you guys would would be a proponent of because when i watch a lot of the videos i'm seeing it's like okay you get them to the ground you use your leverage to keep to subdue your opponent and you let them deplete their own energy supply yeah it's a very fair assessment and um you know, regarding distance, and this is just kind of wrapping up what Hiron said there, 100% jujitsu, for the reasons we just discussed, jujitsu is the hack. Because if a human is born and grows up in the world and is taught through social media, through media, through television, through whatever, society, that the way a fight is fought is to stand in front of someone and be as violent as you can until someone gets the, 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 the short end of the stick there. And it gets injured and can no longer fight. If that's what the generally accepted fighting distance in a world, not just in the Taekwondo or karate, but he don't mentioning for any person, even at Jiffy Lube, if that's true, someone who wants to learn self-defense does not need to become a 10-year black belt of a craft unless the craft that you're learning requires you to be proficient at the same distance that the world is operating in. 
So if you want to knock someone out with your bare hands, you better get to working and you better train for 10 plus years before you engage in any street fight. What we're proposing and why jujitsu, Jeff, is on such a massive climb in terms of popularity and law enforcement and military and civilians. And, you know, the reason why that's true is, number one, because it actually works and it works in much less time for much more people many more people than any other martial art ever has in the history of arts. This includes the grappling arts because the moment you have a grappling art where the requirement is that the practitioner maintains a dominant top position, you're now requiring athleticism and power and speed over someone because you have to be strong enough and powerful enough to put them on their back, which is very hard to do, versus jujitsu, which says, look, we're going to take you to the ground one way or the other. Whether we end up on the bottom or the top is secondary to us getting you to the ground because we're safe either way because we know how to use our bodies so much more completely and, uh, and, and, and so much more comprehensively than the person who only knows how to punch like this. We're there grappling, wrapping, hugging, locking. So jujitsu does that. And when you say take him to the ground is the next step, the answer is yes. Here's why. If we stay on our feet, now there are some exceptions here, right, where you would not want to go to the ground. For example, multiple attackers. If I grab Hidon and I'm holding him and I see his friends are coming, I'm pushing off and I'm exiting as quickly as possible. So I don't want to go to the ground. But barring some, a few exceptions, if we're fighting and this is a, a situation of, of consensual combat or an assault, right, where he now wants to hurt me and I'm protecting myself. The reason we want to go to the ground is because people are most powerful in their strikes when their two feet are planted on the ground. Mm-hmm. Think about it like this. Imagine getting someone who's a really good puncher, put them in the ocean, like in a pool in water and tell now punch your hardest punch why would their punches be weaker because they're not pushing off the same surface that they've always thrown a punch from whether they're punching their friends in the backyard boxing fun or they're at the carnival punching that bag every punch they throw of power always they have their feet planted what we understand is that when you take someone to the ground in a horizontal plane from vertical plane to horizontal plane their feet are no longer planted in the way that they've become so familiar with driving power into punches. So it's as if they're swimming in water trying to throw a punch now. So because our ground fighting strategy does not require us to actually, um, it does not require us to actually hit them with anything effective or anything powerful. We're not gonna strike them at all. Because our ground fighting strategy is just control, I can do that in the water. I can be on my back, I can be on top of you, I can be on your left, on your right. I don't need power for the punch. So we took him in the water analogy. He can't throw any effective punches anymore. And we're going to maintain a distance that even if he does hit us, it's that small one or two. And in the whole process of this, guess who's drowning? The person who does not know how to swim. So because we become comfortable on the ground, our opponent has so much time to kind of drown at that point that we have nothing to worry about. We burn their energy and then they make a mistake and then we capitalize. Not to mention that all we do all day, we're always practicing increasing our understanding of when and where someone can punch us from. So when we're grappling and we're holding each other, the reason we can be so relaxed and be so technical and so efficient is because we know that from here, he can only punch with this hand at this moment. And that punch is only a one on the power scale. And it's no problem. Matter of fact, him trying to punch me probably do more damage to him than it will do to me because it'll deplete his energy. So, yeah. And this is the the cultivation of that kind of awareness is mindfulness. I, I can't stress that enough, you know, particularly for my audience. And like, like my wife and I have been going through um, the course that we have 
together. And there's 30,000 people in that course, if you can imagine at this juncture, and there's going to be probably another 30,000 people by the time it actually launches. If you can imagine like the whole Staples Center doing jujitsu together, that's what's going on, um, which is amazing. Um, but I'm noticing how useful like her yogic flexibility is in jujitsu, um, her awareness. But then also once I start talking about some of the more philosophical principles like de-escalation or like specifically in yoga speak, there's a Sanskrit word called ahimsa, which is like nonviolence, you do no harm. And not only are you protecting yourself in this process, but you're also protecting your assailant or your opponent. And this might be a consensual fight and that's cool. But even if it's not, you know, what you're doing is you're depleting their energy, but you're also not necessarily causing neurological injury or bodily harm through protecting yourself. You're also protecting the other person. And, you know, for those of us who embrace kind of this, this de-escalation mindset, um, I think this is so unique and it might not be obvious on the surface for a martial art that, that this is, that this is such a central component to it. Yeah. We, we come from the belief that people don't want to fight us. I'm see, <laughs> saying us, meaning the jujitsu students and representatives, we've had many instances where someone has, you know, verbally attacked us or even physically pushed us. And these people that might have an energy and attitude towards us, they don't want to fight us. They're going through something. Something is happening, some kind of pain, something's happening in their world. And we just happen to cross paths and now they're throwing their energy in our direction. So our ability to look at them, we already start the fight looking at them through a lens of, man, you're having a bad day and you don't really want to fight us. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes they might not cross the line. We might set a boundary and they might step into our personal space mm -hmm. and we might have to defend ourselves. But we continue to carry this care, right? This almost like this love for the person that we're fighting, once again, because we know that they're going through something. And because we're not fighting from a place of fear, we're fighting from a place of comfort, a place of awareness. We feel safe because we have the skills that we have. We can defend ourselves, take them down, get on top of them. And from there, not feel the need to throw five, 10 punches to their face. Because when we ask students, we often ask people, they walk in here on their first day of class and we hold them down in a position where they're on the bottom of the mount, for example. We ask them, hey, how would you escape here? They don't know. We teach them how to escape right away and they're mind blown. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how simple that was. This is amazing. Now we put them on and after they escape, they end up on top of us. And then I asked the question, now what would you do, assuming you were in a fight? And everybody, most people respond with, I'll start punching. And they say that because they want to secure their victory. They want to keep themselves safe. But once you have a handful of classes, you learn techniques and you say, you know what? I don't have to punch the person to keep myself safe. I can simply control them for a minute and a half and watch them burn their energy. And matter of fact, not only will they burn their energy, but their whole energy and their whole attitude about the fight will change. 
Because the fight started, like when you said, amygdala hijack. They were not in their prefrontal cortex. They were not in their logical brain. They were fighting from, you know, fight or flight. They were in fear. But if you give them time and you hold them down, imagine after a minute of fighting somebody, you say, hey, listen, I'm so sorry this had to happen. Let's get out of here. What do you say? Are we done here? People don't want to be fighting. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, yeah, where the prefrontal cortex can mitigate, can mediate the amygdala, right? It can, and that's where we want to go. But, uh, but we have this hormonal response with epinephrine and cortisol running through our veins. And, and that is what contributes to that sympathetic override or amygdala hijack uh, that, that neuters our rational brain. And so in a way, it's being able to use techniques, like I use often the breath as an example, of being able to penetrate your autonomic nervous system such that you move from the sympathetic state to the parasympathetic state where you can say exactly what you said. Hey, buddy, this is not a profitable equation on, on any side. You know, let's move on. And, um, and that's obviously a win in, in, every, in every situation. And just to be clear, Jeff, when we talk about this, and this kind of rolls over into law enforcement as well regarding the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, and for our friends who have a little less understanding of how that all works. Um, the amygdala hijack happens when, amongst other things, when there's a actual or perceived loss of control. Right. A high intensity situation, right? When do we go into fight or flight mode or survival mode? When the environment or the, 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 the stimulus around us we, causes us to enter into a state of a perception or actual loss of control of the world around us. An, un an unknown world. And this can be true in a relationship where you say, man, you have to resort to meditation to recenter yourself. To Those techniques, what they're ultimately doing is giving you control of something. And in that case, it's your breath. And by you taking control of something, even though the outside world might be burning, when you take control of your breath, your brain can go back into that PFC activated state. And that allows you to make more rational decisions that are better for short term and long term because you're not in your lizard brain, right? So for a person in a fight, it's hard to imagine something more overwhelming and more capable of triggering that loss of control than a violent physical encounter with someone who wants to hurt you or someone else. Like that's one of the most intense encounters one could imagine. So what we're teaching is the same way you have techniques to achieve a meditative state that allows you that PFC control in a in just an everyday experience, everyday existence, we're saying for the most high intense encounter you can imagine, you can also create that PFC by giving you a perceived sense of control or actual control through the techniques of controlling someone else, even though they're trying to hurt you. So we give, we call them islands of control or little buoys. If you imagine like an ocean or like a large lake and you don't know how to swim, what do you want to have in your life? You want to have buoys every five feet every 10 feet. So that even though if you don't know how to swim, you can go from one buoy to the next buoy and hang on and, and just get catch your breath and regain that PFC. I'm in control, at least of this yeah. buoy. Now I have to get across the lake, but I'm okay right now. And then between this buoy and the next buoy it might suck for a little while, but you jump, you panic, and then you find the new buoy. So what we teach in our courses, particularly the one we created for and with um, Commune, was, is the idea of giving the average person these little islands of control 
in an otherwise absolutely chaotic encounter between two people who want to hurt, or at least they want to hurt you. Maybe you don't want to hurt them, but during a violent physical assault, islands of control. Now, what happens through jujitsu is all we do, if you were to keep training after this 10-day course that we're going to release on, on onecommune.com, after this 10-day course, this free course that we're going to launch, if you keep training both in this course, but also in future jujitsu courses, like continue the journey down the path, as we've had so many students do over the last you know, 30 years, what happens is all you do is add more buoys into your lake, literally, so that I go from one buoy to the next. I've never let go of a buoy because I'm always in control of the environment around me in a fight. There's always a perception of and feeling of control because everywhere I land is okay. And then eventually you become a master. And when you become a master, you're not even in the water anymore. You literally have so many buoys in the lake that you actually walk on top of the buoys and you never actually have to swim because life is so good. He said, everywhere I land is okay. Mm. Imagine that. Everywhere you land in a fight. And this even goes the same. And keep going. Even, keep going. But imagine if you had that mindset and you apply it to life. Keep going. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, it, it in many ways, it does roll over to life. And... Even in a verbal altercation, when somebody is yelling at you and screaming at you, right there, the fight has already started. Mm. So it, whether it's verbal, whether it's, you know, very passively physical, it, it doesn't matter because you know that when it hits the fan. Worst case scenario isn't that bad. Worst case scenario, the person yeah. tackles you, you fall to the ground, they're on top of you and they get you in a headlock. I've been there before. It's a buoy. It's a buoy. Yeah. Me and headlocks, we yeah. go way back. Yeah. I have a great relationship with headlocks. Right. And this is how it yeah. rolls over into law enforcement is that police officers, the choice to use force is very much a function of a perception of a threat. Yeah. So if you're an officer, the perception of threat at any given time is directly correlated with your decision to use force and the degree of force that you use, simply yeah. put. So what we do, right, above everything else, is we teach officers techniques that make threatening situations less threatening. So an officer got caught in a headlock. If you don't know jiu-jitsu, it's life or death. They should use deadly force because they might yeah. die in their own mind. But if an officer who trains with us gets caught in a headlock, it's not a deadly force situation because the threat is a function of your training to handle those situations. So above everything else, we give officers a reduced sense of fear and we lower the level of threat that exists in every encounter by giving them safety techniques and confidence to deploy those techniques so that officers can be more buffered in their escalation of force. Rather than going taser, pepper spray, firearm, I got to right. use my tools yeah. right away. They're like, hey, I got 38 and techniques that I can resort to before I even need to touch my taser. Yeah. Well, this is this is a great on-ramp for this this part of the conversation, which is obviously so timely and poignant. I mean, obviously, we had the, the brutal murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin and the, the use of deadly force by perpetrated by police has been thrust into the national spotlight. And there's so much emotion and confusion, honestly, associated with this topic. Now, I think like we can agree most likely that that the Floyd murder was just odious and even pathological. Uh, he was obviously clearly subdued and cuffed and prone, and and Chauvin was justifiably held to account in that particular case. But every single video that we see on YouTube 
that surfaces of a police interaction that's gone off the rails. Every single video is nuanced and, and different, right? And time again, we, we see a botched arrest, a, a struggle ensues, and then there is a resort to violence with either a baton or a taser or in, in some cases a firearm. And because of this, there has been this massive erosion in public confidence uh, in police departments. I think I've heard you guys talk about it as the uh, like the police disappointment gap, I think. And, and you guys have had done so much work in this area. So maybe you can give us a breakdown of where the problem lies and then some clear steps in terms of how we fix it. How do we provide officers with the training they need to then build up the public confidence in law enforcement again? Yeah, we have to start from the position that the <clears throat> police officers could not be more undertrained to perform the task that they're being asked to do when it comes to arresting resistant subjects, taking people into custody, and going hands-on. You're telling me cops don't train five hours a week to yes. prepare for the jobs that they have to you know, come to every day and the law they have to enforce and the community they have to protect? There is no professional in America that is more undertrained in America, in all professions put together that I've ever seen. There's no profession, professionals that are more undertrained to do the task that they are being asked to do than when you ask a police officer with this mandated state level mandated training that they receive or not to go arrest a resisting subject and take that person into custody. It's the most, it's the biggest ask from the most underprepared professions in professionals in America. Here's why people don't know this, Jeff. And we do because we're 25 years ingrained in this law enforcement training, basically this battle to get officers better trained for this exact reason. But the reason why this is such an important point to make is just to give you on average, on average, Police officers in America receive less than four hours a year of training in hands-on de-escalatory control tactics like jujitsu. There are other crafts, but just that has to – anyone who's listening right now, if you forget everything this week or if you forget any, everything we're talking about right now, remember two things. On Monday, the 10-day course begins, and you don't want to miss it because it's free, so do that. And number two, police officers get less than four hours a year in the training that they need to nonviolently take a suspect into custody. So the reason that's important is because if you are a general public, if you're a member of the general public, you're a civilian, and you see a viral video where a police officer uses more force than you felt was necessary. I'm not talking about George Floyd and Derek Chauvin. That was abusive use of power. But I'm talking about a, a, an arrest that was attempted, but it quickly spun out of control. And now the police officer is tasing and baton and pepper spray and potentially fire yeah, four officers arresting a punching them in the head kid. and you're like why are they doing yeah. that well you have to understand if those officers had navy seal type training you train six months for a, you know or 18 months for a six month deployment you're training five hours a week of jujitsu because that's what you should be doing if they had that level of training and that video were, and that incident were to happen on their watch I would agree that it's an abusive use of power in every case because they had sufficient training to do better than what we saw but in, the reality is different than that. The reality is it's like taking you right now, Jeff. If I were to say, here's a gun and a badge, Jeff, and you know, don't break the law, don't do anything crazy, but go arrest that guy right now and, uh, and do so without hurting him or using your tools if you don't absolutely have to. 
the speed with which you would use your taser pepper spray baton <laughs> is a hundred times faster than me or he don't or anybody with a, even a percentage of our training. Uh, you know, even a, even a small percentage of our training. So the point is, the public needs to understand that the officers who are resorting to higher levels of force too rapidly, they're victims of a, of a system that does not provide them the training that they need to do it any well, other way. Reword that. They're not resorting to higher levels of higher levels of force too rapidly. They're not moving too rapidly. They're based moving on what they know. Based on what they know. Correct. But to the public yeah. perception, they go, wow, it's such a rapid escalation. Yeah. When I watch a video of, a, of an excessive use of force, I look, I give it a, I give it the full filter, but then quickly I go, man, it's easy to think that this cop is abusing power right now when the reality is these cops are so disastrously undertrained that what else do we expect? Of course you're going to use, they train, you know, they might train 99% of their training time using their firearm, 1% of their training time on empty hand tactics of control, but yet 99% of their encounters are empty hand tactics of control and less than 1% of officers will ever pull the trigger on the job, in the line of duty, in their entire careers. So it's completely backwards. It's an absolute mess. So when you ask what should be done, the answer from us is very simple. And it's been the same answer for the last yeah. 20 years. Officers need to be engaging in the regular practice of jujitsu, no less than one hour a week. Every officer in America has to become a practitioner of the craft that will not only allow them to use less force, but really reduce the likelihood that they resort on their firearm that they're training so often with, you're going to do what you train. If you train pepper spray, taser, baton, and firearm, 99% of your training, that's what you're going to resort to 99% of the time. We want to tip the scale back in this direction. The problem is it's, it's departmental issues. It's command staff. It's state issues. The state of California only requires four hours of training every two years, not even every year. Yeah. So as long as, the, to me, if you ask me, and this is trying to abbreviate a, a very complicated subject, but to try to make it simple for the sake of time, law enforcement is broken at the state level. That's our final position. At this, when the state says the mandated hours are four hours a year for an officer in California, why is the chief of Torrance Police Department or the chief of LAPD going to say, okay, guys, the mandated minimum is four hours, but we're going to get you guys 32 hours or 52 yeah. hours a year. On what basis are they doing that? Because they're looking at it from a budgetary perspective. If I don't have to do more, I won't. But here's what's wild. If these agencies wait for the state to make change in order to update their training policies, it'll never happen because the state has no incentive to do better. Because when a local use of force goes viral, the local community is the one that pays for it. If Torrance has a viral arrest, People are going to be picketing out front of Torrance Police Department and asking for the resignation of the mayor and the chief of police in Torrance. Well, the, right. the state is, a, is an invisible culprit in all of this. Because when a, when a violent arrest happens in Torrance because the officers get four hours every two years, then who are they going to blame at the state level? Like they don't even know who to target in their complaint. And they don't even, the most public doesn't even know that the state controls in a great way, at least through the minimum standards, what these agencies do. So the state becomes kind of like dodges the bullet, so to speak, in this whole equation, but really they're the ones setting the standards that the agencies in the state are, are, are essentially being governed by because the chief doesn't want to ruffle any feathers, so they just do the bare minimum. Yeah. I, I start to think about some of the lack of training uh, analogously to other situations. Like, for example, uh, let's say in an NBA championship game, 
you know, you're coming down to the final second and someone's got to come in off the bench and hit that three-pointer to win the championship. I mean, this is the level I'm trying to sort of create an equal level of intensity and stress. And you think about what that basketball player has gone through. They have trained every single day of their life in the weight room, on the, in the gym floor, uh, with visualization and meditation, and they still miss sometimes, right? And, you know, I've heard you break down some of the training hours. I think in, in California, where we live, um, in-service uh, police officers are required to get about 664 hours of training to become an officer. I mean, and, and I, I believe that that is less than like a, a cosmetologist, um, even like a, it's about equivalent to a laser hair removal um, a specialist. So the level of expectation on police officers um, is just at this juncture not it's just not it's just not fair given the amount of training that they have received and uh, and I know that you guys are are working um, arduously to address this and I wonder if you could just like ground the some of the success that you have have had like in the Marietta police department, because I think that grounding it in a very specific example will really help people understand what happens to a police department when they get this kind of training. Um, And there is ROI there. Uh, There's actually financial ROI back to the agency or back to the department. Not only do you see a a reduction in, in injury both to the civilian audience but also to policemen themselves but there is actually a a, a monetary roi so maybe you could just break that down you know even in just a few minutes the 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 case for our listeners here the case that jeff is referring to is the marietta case study marietta police department in georgia had an incident go viral so they decided to start allowing all of their officers to do what we've been recommending for 20 years which is do regular jujitsu at a local carefully vetted Brazilian jujitsu school on an ongoing basis where the cops could go train two, three times a week and the department would finance their participation. Simply put, out of 145 officers, 95 of them opted into this training opportunity. And the numbers that happened after 18 months of this program are nothing short of amazing. So in the field, so 50 officers did not opt in, 95 opted in and 18 months, there was a 48% reduction in injuries to officers in their uses of force in the field. So when officers went hand-on, hands-on, there were 48% less likely department-wide. Now, the crazy part is, of the injuries that did happen during that 18-month period, 100% of them were in the non-jujitsu training population, the 50 officers that didn't opt in. So there were zero reported injuries in 18 months for uses of force against officers, there were zero reported injuries in the population that does jujitsu. Now that's impressive and amazing. And it saved them $67,000 in workers' comp expenses because of the reduction in injuries to the department officers. For the public side, there was a 53% reduction in injuries to officers, or sorry, to the civilians. So civilians were 53% less likely to be hospitalized by an officer during a use of force encounter when the officer was part of the BJJ trained group. For all the reasons we discussed, it's about distance management and control. We don't have to use closed fists. And they have video evidence of these officers. They have body cams for all these uses of force. It's very easy to see why there was no hospitalizations 
or fewer than the BJJ, non, the non-trained group, they would take someone down, they put their hand on their back, control, talk to them, no profanity, no punch. It's like, hey, we're going to take care of you. You know, we got to take you back to the hospital. Let's say it's have a mental patient that escaped from the hospital. Take him down on the grass, put a hand on the back, say, hey, we're going to stay right here. You're safe. We're going to get you back to the hospital. Um, bear with me here. And they're just talking to them. Like they're actual conversing with the person in a calm, respectful demeanor. Yeah. And it's like, it's just a, such a different tune than what we're used to. So they saved that. Taser deployments went down by 23% or 27%. Um, and then the use of force overall, the use of force by the BJJ population was drastically lower than the uses of force overall by the non-BJJ train. And that was one of the most remarkable ones. So it's not just the amount of force, it's the use of force at all. The choice to use force is reduced in the population that has more jujitsu. Why do you think that is? Well, people, when people think of a street fight, anybody, it could be someone in the community, it could be a police officer, just a human being thinks of a street fight. They think that a fight is very unpredictable. You, I imagine that you, how do you feel about a street fight, Jeff, when you thought about a fight two years it ago? Be, it would be crazy. Is it unpredictable? Completely unpredictable. Yes. But what we're saying is that that's not the case. That I actually believe, and with training, you can get to a point where you understand that a fight is so, so predictable. It's so very predictable. And when you give someone the knowledge, the techniques, the understanding, the mindsets to and then you give them this way of looking at a fight. That's when you create officers that go out in the community and they arrest someone and they get into a fight with someone in the community and they don't use excessive force. They use control and no one gets hurt because they're fighting from a place of comfort, from a place yes. of understanding. And that's very rare. Yeah. And I, I think the, the numbers of police interactions are at such a scale that, that I think that there's a lot of public confusion about this. I mean, there are 60 million police interactions annually, over 10 million arrests annually. And the thing about every single one of those interactions is that it is a life or death situation because there is always the presence of a gun. Not just on the whole on the cop's hip, but there are 400 million guns in the United States. So then you wonder, with the absence of training, why there is this amygdala hijack, why there are so many botched arrests, and then subsequently, you know, these videos that go viral that are alarming and, and incredibly disturbing. So this is why this work is so important. So, yeah, the Marietta case study is really sparking a whole new movement in law enforcement right now. And um, the, the, the command staff over there, who we've been working with since 2009, but we've been working with them in a very limited capacity. We train a trainer, they go train their colleagues, and they do four hours a year. So it fell apart right there because even though we train him substantially, when he goes and trains his colleague, it's a joke, right? So that's yeah. what changed after this viral video that happened in Marietta. They said, man, we're, we're only giving them four hours a year. What do we expect them to perform like it with four hours? So they finally got the, 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 the seriousness of the kind of the state mandated confusion and problem there. So we're very excited because anecdotally, we know that cops who train jujitsu for the last 25 years, students here, students at all of our schools around the world, we know that these cops who train jujitsu are calmer, more effective use because they tell us directly, but these are cops who pay for their own jujitsu practice on a regular basis and then go use force in yeah. a much lower level and with much more compassion and control than their untrained counterparts. And they become standouts in their agency. They become the standouts like, hey, 
call Hidon to arrest this guy because we know he's not going to hurt him and he'll take care yeah. of it. Hidon's the guy. That shouldn't be the case. The cop who knows how to arrest someone nonviolently should not be the exception. They should be the expectation. The yeah. exception should be the officers who are either, you know, so out of shape or so unprofessional in their approach that they say, no, I don't want to do that stuff, that they're, they're going to take care of us. They're going to pay for us to go, but I don't want to do it nonetheless. I'm like, okay, well, then maybe you shouldn't be a cop. If you're not going to invest in the skills that will allow you to protect yourself first and foremost, but also to engage and, and conduct arrests while protecting the civilians that you're, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of dutied to protect. Remember, protect and serve. But how can you say protect and serve if you can't protect the person you're serving that warrant against? You got to be able to protect now, someone while you serve the community. Now, especially the cops that have the police department support. Because there are cops that don't have the support of their police departments, meaning they work crazy hours, they live far from their police departments, and it's a little tough to make time to train. Many of them still do, and we commend them. That's amazing. But for the police departments that are finding partnerships with jiu-jitsu schools around the world and that are providing training for their police officers, those cops got to all take advantage. It's only a matter of time. It's a matter of time. Yeah. And the Marietta it, data is the, is the little spark that it, is getting everybody in, moving. In yeah. three years, if a police department is not partner with the jiu-jitsu school to offer regular training, then you're going to look at that police department like, what is wrong with you? How could you not be offering this training with what these guys have to face every day on the street? And just so you know, Jeff, we've gotten, since Marietta data has been published, we've gotten, I'd say, over 50 inquiries from agencies around the country that want to pursue the same partnership between school and privately owned jujitsu school and uh, sorry the agency they want to pursue that but we don't have schools in 70 80 percent of those locations so where we have schools we're creating these partnerships and they're very fruitful and amazing and the officers seeing the results they're opting in they're loving it but in many departments in many agencies and locations yeah. where we don't have a school these agencies are like oh man who do we who do we go with and it's got to be careful because bjj as amazing as the art is generally it's also a completely unregulated industry and every single school is completely on their own. And there's some schools that are, uh, unfortunately, like any industry, right, run by very sour criminals or, or sour people, some of which have criminal records. Some of them are, are not the, the best members of society are running BJJ schools. And that's not a, and that's not a good thing, for, especially for a law enforcement partnership. I'm glad we wrap back to this real quick, because speaking of BJJ, you mentioned how jujitsu is about being efficient and using the least amount of energy and, you know, really depleting someone's energy. You were explaining it earlier how our grandfather, was a technician and he was so light and he had to really rely on technique. We are 6'4", 195 pounds, but we grew up in a family where we had to always be true to jujitsu as an art of self-defense and efficiency and survival. And because of that, we don't rely on our physical attributes to do the jujitsu that we do and that we teach. So, so many people out there could be thinking, you know what, I want to do jujitsu, but I'm not physically fit. And when you see videos and photos of us, you could say, yeah, well, it makes sense that they do it. Yeah. It's not the case. And this, this is so true because we, the reason why we have to stay true to what our grandfather and everybody before us pushed, which was jujitsu for self-defense and for survival and through the way of efficiency and leverage, is because we know that our because our goal is to give jujitsu to the masses and we know that no matter who you are you might encounter a giant there's going to be somebody out there who will outweigh you who's going to be more physically fit who's younger who's more explosive 
So you can't, we can't teach you techniques that rely on you being athletic and you being strong. And for a police officer, they also, they're dealing with people all across the board and anybody can become a police officer, normal human beings at any, you can be any height to become a police officer. You might be a little bit out of shape. You might be a little bit older. You pass through the basic, you know, police training, you're in, you're a police officer mm. and you have to arrest somebody who's 20 pounds younger. I'm sorry, 20 years younger heavier than you are, you need skills that you can carry throughout your whole law enforcement career. And if you're a civilian, throughout your whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the consequences of police departments not engaging in this training are more videos like Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, for example. I mean, that is a clear example of of, of a situation that did not need to happen, or even Dante Wright in, in Minneapolis. And you, you guys and I are, we're much more familiar with some of these particular videos. Um, but, uh, but I, they just go to, to underscore. No, it's worth mentioning. It it's worth mentioning. There's, there's, there's more wrong with law enforcement. There are more challenges in law enforcement than simply increasing their proficiency in hands-on defensive tactics. But what we can say um, and this is not the only solution and only work that needs to be done in law enforcement. I think that with a new degree of visibility on law enforcement in America, with everything being filmed from every angle, they just have to get better. They were the same since 1970 and for much of the you know decades since. But now there's just a demand for improvement that is unprecedented, which is why you have these high tensions. So this is certainly not the only thing that needs to be done. But what it's, it's, it's our expertise and it's our belief that it's the lowest hanging fruit right now from the law enforcement improvement tree. This is what is so deficient, Jeff, that every other problem in law enforcement is exacerbated by the fact that cops literally live in fear every second on the job because of the training they don't receive. So when right. you reduce the fear, you reduce the anxiety, you create that PFC activation opportunity, and ultimately you give cops the opportunity to exist in a more humane, compassionate space because they're comfortable in their own skin. And what this refers to is what we call uniform confidence. Most cops, not most, cop might be a high school student, played a bunch of video games, maybe a little bit of high school something, played volleyball, graduated and didn't have a path, said, okay, I want to be a cop, went and became a cop, never been in a fight in their life, never played a contact sport, never did a martial art. Now they're a police officer and they're there. The, the, the source of their confidence on the job is their uniform, their badge and their firearm and their tools. That's the source of their confidence. And when the source of your confidence are so extrinsic and so so superficial. When you get challenged, hey, F you, cop, hey, this, if someone spits on you, someone acts and behaves disrespectful towards you, you're so quick to crumble and have that amygdala hijack because you just lost control of the encounter. But when you know that your source of your confidence is much deeply, much more deeply rooted in your actual capabilities, not what you're wearing, but who you are because of what you've invested in yourself or hopefully what your agency invested in you, when your physical and nonviolent and your control capabilities is your true source of confidence, like it is for us, amongst other things. But our truest source of confidence is that we are safe in worst case scenarios. When that becomes true for an officer, every conversation becomes easier. Every interaction becomes less aggressive. Yeah. Every use of force becomes more buffered. The compassion and the, the existence of that officer, it's just a different officer. When they speak, you hear them because they're speaking not superficially, but from within. And you go, okay, maybe there's no need to have an altercation with this officer because they know what they're talking about and, uh, and they seem ready. Whatever it is, I can't, tell, I can't put my finger on it, but this officer seems much more confident yeah. 
than the previous officer that I just spoke to versus Beautiful. the police officer who, because police officers are watching the viral videos of their, of other officers around the country being attacked. Right. And when they, when you watch one video of one police officer being attacked and you're a police officer, every other traffic stop, every other house call you ever do forever, you, you imagine that that might happen to you. And Deep Good down point. inside, you know that you don't even have an answer for if that was to happen to you. So now you're on the edge so the whole time. You're on edge and you don't even communicate with the community member, with the civilian the same. You speak to them differently because you're speaking from a place of fear. Now, 90% of the time, that person that they're interacting with probably won't ambush them or 95% of the time. But yet, when you start speaking to them in a, from a place of fear... They pick up on that. And then they're like, man, why are you treating me like this? And then everything starts to escalate. Now, and then you have people today more than right. ever. People today more than ever. Maybe 30 years ago, if you had a gun and a badge and you're a police officer, 50 years ago, I'm not sure. There was a certain like respect. Just do whatever you say and lay down. Yeah. But maybe now more than ever, people are like, why are you talking to me? I didn't even do anything wrong. You shouldn't even be. I'm not that person. They're, they're, everybody's being, you know. I'm not that guy is a very common thing. And many times they are not that guy. But all going back to the police officer who's afraid, you communicate differently and the people pick up on that. And that it. becomes, and that kid's only, it's only a matter of time before that can completely explode. Yeah. Yeah, there's a misconception, obviously, that that all police officers are depraved right now. And Henner, I, I heard you talk about this on, on Sam Harris's podcast where the best way to actually weed out the real depraved officers is by actually giving everybody training, right? Because if everybody's well-trained, then yeah, you know, there's going to be... Yeah. So to yeah. just kind of, yeah, just for the, our friends who didn't hear the Sam Harris podcast, which I think everyone should listen to if you care more about the subject, um, had a great conversation with our friend and student, Sam Harris. But what I said there is this, there are, let's just call it, there are officers who operate without integrity. And how do you know, how can you identify them? Like, let's say in terms of the abuse of power, because there is, there is a line, right? <clears throat> Where an officer is abusing their power. They're not simply using the appropriate level of force. They're actually abusing their power that they're being given in their, in their position to enforce the law. And what my theory is this, the excessive use of force doesn't explicitly mean they're abusing the, their power. What we're saying is the excessive use of force can be a function, and it a lot of times is a function of the amygdala hijack that comes as a result of the undertraining of that officer. Now, if me or Hiron, with our training that we have, were to get into an encounter and arrest Jeff, you, Jeff, and we were to take you down, and two on one, two officers on one, and we were taking you down, and you were prone. <clears throat> no cuffs on, but we got you prone, and we're punching you in the side of the head, and someone's filming this. And they said, man, look at these guys. They abuse their power. They would have a great position to say that from because the training we received does enable us to arrest you much easier with a much lower level of force because we've been trained to do so. But my point is, whether it's an abusive use of power or merely an excessive use of power that happened as a function of undertraining, that distinction cannot be made until the officers have been given sufficient training to handle yeah. the situations that we're, we're throwing them in every single day. So yeah. the training has to come first. And then once everyone is sufficiently trained, and I'll tell you once we've arrived at that point, I know what I'm looking for. 
once the country's sufficiently trained, then a video goes viral. The first question isn't what tool did they use? The first question for me is what training did they receive? Yeah. And then based on the training, I can tell you whether the choice of tool escalation or the rapid escalation was not necessarily right, because right's not the right word here, but understandable as a natural function of their undertraining, or was it unacceptable based on the sufficient training that they received? That distinction can't be made unless we start from the basis of what is their baseline training or not. Yeah. Yeah. And this training has to take into account that the the methods and the principles of the training need to be applied often in a split second. So uh, there was a, a, a video that went viral earlier this summer, right around the time of the Chauvin verdict um, with Makia Bryant in, in Columbus, Ohio, and a police in-service officer arrives on a scene and there's a woman, young woman with a knife r running at another woman and he has to make an absolute split second decision. And, you know, without this kind of both physiological intelligence, emotional intelligence, without this kind of training, you just, it is just not, uh, one can just not expect one to be able to always make that right decision. And there still will be mistakes. Uh, but in the absence of, of training, you know, we're just not going to get uh, the consequences and the results that everybody There will wants, be mistakes. So. You said it, Jeff, there will be mistakes. When you have people who are, in law enforcement are encountering with people more often than not on their very bad days, right? Someone had a, the worst day of their life. They're making a mistake. They're drugs, alcohol, um, or a mental episode that is just a matter of fact for a particular person. And officers are going to go interact with them. And, you know, things are going to happen. There will be conflict. There will be challenges. But what we're saying is that we're not, it's not going to get perfect. Even with perfect training, you're not going to have perfect encounters because these are conflicts, right? These are real yeah. fights that are, these are real, like, use of force encounters and, and violent situations. So there's going to be accidents. There's going to be things that happen that people don't generally agree with. However, if we can get the whole country on the Marietta program where we yeah. reduce 100% of officer reduction of injury to officers because they know how to grapple and they know how to fight, that would be amazing. I don't think that's going to be likely once you roll it out to a larger sample mm -hmm. size, it won't be quite 100. But I can guarantee that, you know, officers who know jujitsu are at least 95% you know what I'm saying? Less likely to get injured in a ground control situation than a clumsy, untrained officer who just falls down and doesn't know how to be in the horizontal plane. But yeah. the reduction of injuries to suspects, if we can reduce the hospitalizations, and that's kind of the key metric for serious injuries there, if we can reduce the hospitalizations to civilians by 53% mm. across the country, like we're doing in Marietta, imagine the reduction in lawsuits against agencies, the reduction in, in public outcry against law enforcement, because again, we can't measure the inciting incidents that don't happen. Right. You see, we don't know. We don't know the inciting and the viral videos that never happen. All we're saying is it's too much as it is, and we can only benefit by going in the other direction. And in, in a great part, that will begin um, with, with better training for these officers because for, for all the reasons we've discussed. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, I want to conclude uh, our conversation just in the interest of respecting your time in um, – in a somewhat strange and, and a little bit macabre way, so I'll just and I'll be quick with it. So, and this is just something that's happening in my family life right now. So, we rescued these two little cats and we raised them from from day one. Their name was Spice and Plumpkin, and they were like inseparable brothers. They just played with each other all the time, and especially as I got more interested in in BJJ. 
I was watching them literally grappling and rolling with each other all day. They would they would take each other to the, to the ground and use their leverage, and it was really interesting actually just watching a, uh, another species of animal do it. And sadly, uh, yesterday one of them was hit by a car and passed away. So it's a little macabre, and my daughter's really upset. So I was managing that yesterday, and as I, I was re- reflecting on it, I called up my brother. And uh, I was just thinking about brothers and, and I called up my brother and I grew up playing music with my brother, played music all the time. And so we had a really special connection around that. I hadn't talked to him in a couple of weeks and, you know, we just sat on the phone and just had this connection and it was, uh, it was sweet. And you guys work so closely together and I just wanted to give you an opportunity in, in closing to talk about what it's like to work together as brothers and what you really admire in each other and how you guys learn from each other. I love that. And you had mentioned the amazingness and the, the beautiful nature or the, I guess the byproduct of the jujitsu community. When you get involved in jujitsu, the community is very special and no matter where you go in the world, if you see somebody wearing a jujitsu shirt, there is like this, like, hey, there's an energy. There's a connection between you and that person. If you see somebody wearing a, a Nike shirt or a Lululemon shirt, you don't say hi to them. So that, that kind of camaraderie and community in jujitsu is very, very special. And everybody who's involved benefits from that. Um, I'm very fortunate. We're very fortunate because I have a brother who's my brother. Everybody loves having, if you have a sibling, it's, it's very special. It's a blessing to have a sibling. So I'm very fortunate to have a brother, period. On top of that, to have a brother who is a completely different energy from me, but at the same time, a very necessary energy and is an energy that he benefits me in so many ways, right? The way that he is and that he exists, the way that he exists. So that's just now on a business side. We have a, there's a business, there's a brothers, there's a training partner, there's a friends. We have so many different relationships. So I'm just so grateful that I get to exist on all four of those all day, every day with this guy. And of course, the, and, and they shift. At one point in my life, I'm just happy that we're two brothers and we're in high school together. At another point, I'm happy that I have a brother who can choke me out sometimes. And then I can choke him and we sharpen each other's jujitsu swords. And then on the business side, there's a brother who's nonstop <laughs> wants to spread this to the world. And it just brings me along with him. He's like, yeah, let's go, let's go teach more people. I'm like, all right, let's go. Who should we teach? And then on now on a family side, on a personal, on a family side, there's a brother who wants to hang out and we, we're raising families together. So it's a very unique uh, world that I live in and I'm extremely grateful. Thank you. Um, Beautiful. Man. Yeah, we, I feel the same way. And um, yeah, for me, all the reasons he don't talk about and then from the business side, which is where we differ a lot, right? Like very different energies. Um, I really appreciate, I think that I, I, I you know, if it weren't for he I don't think I would ever stop working or ever like take a break or like do anything like, you know, it's just crazy. And he energy and spirit is we got work to do and we have a very unique position to do it and a very special platform just to change lives all over the world. 
Um, you know, but at the same time, his spirit is, you know, it's 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 also very much right here, right now, right? And if if, if you're buried in the if you're buried in tomorrow and you're buried in the plan for the next five years and the next 10 years, right? Which is what I like to draw. I'm projecting and planning three and five years out all the time. He's like, Henner, when do you ever live now? Right? Like you're in an office 10 hours a day. Why don't you just go to the beach? And why don't we go to Costa Rica? And why don't, so he very much, and it's not that he doesn't want to work and he doesn't have the work in him. It's just that he's just, it's just a very healthy balance, like a perfect balance. And I'm so grateful for that because I need that pull. I need that pull to like be present. And sometimes just like, yo, nothing really matters. Be right now, be present, be right, connect with the people that you're around. And he don't brings that energy. So it truly is the yin and the yang. And this type of connection, brotherhood, in terms of both the family and the professional, you can't create this, right? Because how many, how many family businesses do we see that don't exist and don't work because of the fact that there is a family yeah. relationship there? So normally right. family businesses don't work. And even within our own family, I've seen it be so, I've seen the family aspect of family business be so corrosive. And so negative in so many instances, right? Even within the Gracie family, which is a massive family, that growing up, my mindset was always very simple. It was like, man, the number one goal isn't to teach jujitsu. The number one goal is to crack the code on how to share this art with the world in a way that allows us to stay together. That was always the ambition. And we've cracked that code and we're successful now and we're together and, and changing lives but, because of it. But what's keeping us together is that we have the same goal of giving jujitsu to the people who need it most, mm. right? We both understand that the, you know, the 23 year old, you know, maybe high school wrestler, he does need it. Yes, he can benefit from it, but he has a certain athleticism and comfort in his own skin that maybe others don't have. So who can we give jujitsu to? And this is the message that our grandfather pushed. What child, right? What, what man or woman can we give jujitsu to that it will really make a difference in how they live their lives in terms of giving them confidence and preparing them for the challenges that life will throw their way? So we, we both are always thinking about who else can we expose it to? And that's what keeps us together. We have a, a like-minded you know, mission. We're on the same mission. We're on the same mission and we have opposite skills. So there's, there's the, the, the filling of each other gap in that sense, like the yin and the yang. But the yin and the yang, they are united on what we're, why we do what we're doing mm -hmm. is, is what's so motivating to help us work as hard as we do. And real quick, one thing about those two cats. I'm sorry for the loss of one yeah. of the cats. But it just shows. And you, you, there, there's so many examples of jujitsu in nature. And it's not even jujitsu. It's just the body. And it's just natural. It's just two bodies, whether it's two cats or two lizards. We've seen it all. And now it can be two humans. And there's a comfort and there's a play. So like you said, the cats are having fun. And I would imagine that those cats, if they got in a fight for their lives, they'd be more prepared than a cat that didn't have a sibling that they were around all day, every day. Or the cat that was doing, you know, relying on the perfect striking distance. Yes. Instead of the grappling yeah. cat always has the advantage. So there's yeah. just, it's so nature. And I, I can't help, every time I think of jujitsu, I'm so grateful that I'm involved in one of the most natural things in the world. And I'm so grateful. I, it's like, it, it's, it's like a partnered yoga. Like I see a nature in yoga. I see nature in so many of the things that we do all day, every day. So I'm just so grateful for the life that I live. And my father always said, you guys have the best job in the world to teach jujitsu and spread it how you guys do. And I really believe that. So I'm so grateful to be talking to you and just to be helping spread 
that which we're so passionate about here on Commune. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, well, your emotional intelligence in your brotherhood has clearly led to a, a big, beautiful, broad fraternity. Uh, and I'm just getting to know it, and I, I'm very grateful for that. But I just say that um, the presence um, that you guys bring to your practice and your craft um, is palpable. And, uh, and for me, again, that is what I'm always focusing on is being accessing that sacred presence of being non-judgmentally present in this everlasting now such that we can bring compassion uh, to ameliorate the world. And, and you guys are doing that every day. So God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for having thank us, Jeff. You. We're excited. And thank you for the opportunity to do this project for the, with the self-defense course for your audience. I think it's the perfect audience that above and beyond every other martial art are going to appreciate jujitsu for what it makes it for what makes it so unique. So we really appreciate the chance to spread to that audience. And we think it's going to save a lot of lives and change a lot of lives and change a lot of people's perceptions about what martial arts can be because jujitsu really breaks the mold and, uh, and allows a growth opportunity that few other arts can. So we're stoked about it. Thanks for having us. And for those who haven't checked it out, check out the course, onecommune.com and uh, free starting Monday, Monday through what the 9th through the 18th, 10 days straight for free worldwide. Everyone's on it for free. And after that, you got to pay for it. So make sure you guys get signed up August 9th and join us for this incredible party. Can't wait. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Huron and Henner Gracie. To keep abreast of their work, visit them at gracieuniversity.com. And you can try their commune course, Jiu-Jitsu for Self-Defense, for free at onecommune.com slash Gracie. And drop me a line any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com or follow my rants on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.